For the past 20 years, Dr. Thomas Fisher has worked in the emergency department at the University of Chicago Medical Center, serving the same Southside community in which he was raised. During the past two years of COVID-19, he decided to write about his experience in a large urban hospital emergency room. He says at the end of the shift, he was haunted by the confusion in the eyes of his patients. He asks a couple questions that they probably are thinking. Who is this man treating them from behind a mask? Why do they have to wait so many hours to be treated? Dr. Fisher attempts to answer these and many other questions in his book about a year of healing and heartbreak in a Chicago ER. Dr. Thomas Fisher, author of The Emergency, at the end of your book, Chapter 15, it's a letter to your mom. And I want to read the first couple of sentences and have you fill in the blanks. Dear Mom, I did all I could to protect you, but it wasn't enough. When you came home just as sick as when you went to the hospital, the wave of nausea made my eyes water. Years of training, a network of colleagues, and an understanding of how health care screws people amounted to a hill of dust when it came to keep you safe. Why did you write that to your mother and when? In the fall of 2020, um, my mom had some back pain. And for somebody as stoic and generally well as she was, any time she raises an alarm, even if she describes it as sort of minor, I get concerned. And in the process, we decided that she would go to the emergency department where I deliver care. And, um, and she didn't have a good experience. Um, like so many people who go to emergency departments around the country, she waited too long and had her, didn't have her pain relieved sufficiently and didn't receive a timely diagnosis. And, um, and this is in a moment where, as I described there, you know, I've been taking care of sick people for 20 years. I've been taking care of sick people in that specific emergency department for 20 years. And I have an understanding of how sometimes people get caught in the sharp grinding parts of an American healthcare system that doesn't always treat people well. And so in those moments, I wanted to be not a policymaker or a physician or, you know, or, or a fixer. I just wanted to be a concerned son who was worried about his mom and wanted her to get diagnosis, get diagnosed and treated. And I was disappointed across all counts, not, not surprised um, because I myself have been a perpetrator of those long waits of those misdiagnoses, of those undertreatments of pain. I'm not innocent in this process, but I wanted something better for my mom, as we all would. And so it was indicative of sort of the frustration that I experienced both as a caregiver and as a observer of the American healthcare system and was particularly hurt that, you know, my own mother, I couldn't protect her in the time that she needed it even though I knew what might happen. 
Did she survive it? Yes, she's doing great. She went elsewhere and, you know, through a process of elimination, was found to have a treatable condition that was treated with medications over an extended period of time, and the condition resolved, and now she's, you know, well. Um, but, you know, it's terrifying. If you've had family members sick, you, you worry. You know, you're, even those of us in healthcare, our minds often go to worst-case scenarios rather than the most common scenarios. And what we hope is that they will be seen and treated and delivered from illness as quickly as possible, given all of the deep technical resources the American healthcare system has. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. How many people ever go into an emergency room? How many people ever go in? In other words, what's the percentage of people that use it? Do you know that? I mean, I assume that at some point in everybody's life, they use an emergency department. It is the most common denominator of all of American healthcare, where people who are facing one of their biggest challenges, either, you know, the, the day that their dad has a heart attack or, you know, w when somebody falls at work or, you know, gets their, you know, you know, get, has, has a diabetic emergency, ends up in the emergency department, and also people who are at the end of a series of bad days end up in the emergency department because they have no place to stay or, you know, they've been in a dangerous relationship and they need help or, you know, they don't have a physical home to live in and they are cold. Um, and so I think over the course of people's lives, everybody at some point goes to the emergency department. I certainly have. And, you know, in those moments, it means the emergency department is a very special and interesting place because we have the, we see everybody. We see people who are healthy and chronically ill. We see the rich and the poor. We see the homeless and the CEOs. And it gives us a vantage point on society that very few other people have. If I were to walk in your emergency room, what would I see? Uh, that is a very interesting and sort of cool question because it totally depends. Our busiest days tend to be Mondays, which is counterintuitive. I think most people assume that we're busiest on like a Friday night or something, but Mondays are our busiest days. Um, and on a typical Monday, you'll see all kinds of things. You know, somebody was riding their bike to work and hit a pothole and fell and, you know, might have a sprained or broken wrist. We see um, people who have missed their dialysis sessions and are in the emergency department short of breath. We see confused older people who might have a urinary tract infection, something easy that we can treat. Um, we'll see um, people who are depressed or anxious and are either clear that they're depressed or anxious or are having a physical complaint that is, masking, that is their presentation of depression and anxiety. Um, we see back pain. We see shootings. We see women having pregnancy complications. You know, we see everything. And that will be most prominent on a Monday afternoon or evening. And then we sort of get a little bit quiet on a Sunday morning when fewer people are coming in. And in flu season, we see a lot of the coughing and febrile and people with chronic illnesses who are um, who have fallen ill with a virus 
not surprisingly, we saw a ton of that during COVID. And in the summer, we see motorcycle accidents and shootings and car collisions as people um, meet traumatic injuries. Um, it has some patterns to it that if you've worked there long enough, you begin to experience. Um, but it is uh, always interesting. And I don't think that I started feeling like, oh, I've seen it all until I've been practicing for about 10 or 15 years. And even now I get surprised on occasion. What's your week like? Uh, I am not a typical emergency medicine physician, I think, because I don't, because I've been writing and do all of these other things that I sort of describe in the book that include, you know, working on the health system itself. I work, um, I, I don't work full time in the emergency department, but those who do work full time work about three shifts in a week, sometimes four. Those shifts are sometimes morning, sometimes evening, and sometimes night shifts. Um, in my hospital, they are eight hours at a time, which is manageable. And they're really interesting because not only do we have the variety of patient presentations, but we work as a team. And I think what's exciting about the teamwork is that whether it's our pharmacies, pharmacists and nurses and technologists or our housekeeping and security, we are all sort of focused. And after a while, we can anticipate and start moving as a unit in ways that don't require a whole ton of direction. And particularly when things are complicated and, um, and moving fast because somebody is decompensating or has a critical illness, that choreography just, um, that seamless choreography is sort of really beautiful to experience and to see happen. What impact did the 1986 law regarding emergency rooms have on people coming to the room? The Emergency Medical Act, the, the Intala law, yeah. um, is that the one you're referring to? I am, yes. So Impala was at the end of um, an active work to keep hospitals from dumping their uninsured patients on public sources, on the public hospital system. And um, well before my time as a practicing physician, I was a very, very young person when this law was passed. I had very little engagement in the world outside of my, my classroom. Um, people, doctors, uh, uh, sick people would often get a wallet biopsy before they got care. And if they weren't of the appropriate insurance, my understanding is they would get transferred to public systems rather than being cared for where they were. And sometimes in that transfer process, their emergent care, their emergent medical issue would decompensate en route. Or maybe they were in active labor. And rather than having their child delivered where they were, they would be transferred. This did a couple things. It made 
once the law was passed that you had to take care of everybody regardless of their, you had to treat emergency medical issues regardless for an individual's ability to pay, that made the emergency department the indispensable health resource in the American healthcare system. It was literally the only place people could go without regard for their ability to pay. That wasn't primary care. They could select and say, well, we're only going to see 10% of our, we're only going to see 10% Medicaid or 15% are insured. Everybody else could select, but not the emergency department. That was the only place you could go, even if you had no ability to pay whatsoever. And so what that meant was um, it redistributed the healthcare resources of society. And so everywhere, um, everywhere people could seek care, but it also meant that healthcare systems started thinking differently about how do we, if we have an unfunded mandate to care for people through the emergency department, care for their emergent issues, what, is, what are the financial implications for their healthcare system as a whole? And if they need or want a particular margin, um, will an unfunded mandate to care for people who are uninsured or underinsured through the emergency department have an impact on the overall system? And hospitals responded in varying ways. Some flung their doors open with a moral mandate to care for everybody and figured out other ways to balance their books. And others did things like um, meter the way that patients who were admitted to the emergency department found beds upstairs compared to those who were transferred in or directly admitted so that there was a de facto competition for inpatient beds that led to ED overcrowding in a lot of places and delayed care for many people who came in. Um, but that didn't happen everywhere, even though it was a relatively common solution. That said, EDs remain indispensable and do everything from childcare to prenatal care to, to trauma care across our country. We'll get back to Madison in a moment, but where did you grow up in Chicago? I grew up in Hyde Park. So for those who are familiar with Chicago, Hyde Park is on the south side. It's one of the few communities that is um, that has a racial diversity. It's in a segregated south side, but and it is mostly um, black. But because it is anchored by the University of Chicago, there's a large community of white people as well, which is unusual on the South side. It is the same community where prior to his launch to the presidency, Barack Obama lived. Um, Carol Mosley Braun, who was a black woman Senator also lived in that community. Um, and has boasted, um, and, and, you know, it's just a very interesting walkable, uh, community. Um, and it's the same community where I deliver healthcare right now. How did the killing of Ben Wilson change you? Ben Wilson, Benji, played basketball at Simeon. I was a kid 
when his star was rising on the South side, where when he was seen as the country's best basketball prospect was about the same time that Michael Jordan arrived at the Chicago Bulls and became the country's was emerging as the country's best NBA player. I was, you know, a grade school child and um, looking and, and, you know, high schoolers and NBA players were basically all the same adults in my mind. These were people to look up to. One day Benji was leaving school and was with his girlfriend and bumped into another young man. Conflict ensued, verbal jabs were exchanged and Benji was shot right there on the sidewalk and died hours later. And what I recall was the city mourned his death, not only because Benji was this rising star in a basketball crazy city and in a basketball crazy South side, but because for all intents and purposes, Benji was the model. Benji was being groomed for excellence by his, you know, by his striving middle-class family who was training him not only to be a great ball player, but to be the sort of citizen that we claim we want. And to have him plucked from the prime, from, from the growth of his personal and professional career just so suddenly was jarring to me. It, it made the notion that violence was abstract and foreign, something very personal and local, something that could happen to me. I was also in, you know, a striving middle-class family on the South side. While I wasn't that kind of athlete, you know, I, I was never going to grow to be six, eight and have ball handling skills like he, he did, but I was similarly being taught that I could do anything that I could emerge from the South side and, you know, be a doctor, be a lawyer, be, be something greater than, you know, getting over, getting over on a day-to-day basis. And if he could get plucked and have his life ended on the sidewalk outside of school, well, doesn't that mean any of us could, it was a very sobering view on the random wanton violence on the South side that a small conflict with the infusion of guns could lead to, could lead to the end of a life quickly, suddenly. How, how, without recourse. how often have you seen someone come to the emergency room because of a gunshot wound? I mean, it happens all the time. There is, incredible violence in America's cities and on the south side of Chicago. Um, I think what we, we often tally and see the numbers of the people killed by guns, but that is a fraction of the number of people shot. I mean, in the summer, it's not unusual to see double-digit people shot in the night in our emergency department. And, you know, over the course of a year... You know, there are hundreds, if not thousands of people that we that we care for who have been, you know, shot full of holes for 
everything from, you know, a random bullet flying through their home to intense conflict that led them to be, led them to be shot and injured. It is, it is extremely common. This may sound like a strange question, but when somebody is shot and they come into the emergency room, what is your reaction to the wound itself? And how often, I mean, I've I've never seen anybody shot, but if somebody is wounded by a gun and by a bullet, um, what condition does it usually create in the body and how do you treat it? You know, there's a there are two levels to this question. There is sort of the clinical question of what does a missile do to flesh, and then there's the other question to what is being shot due to a person. What the missile does, it depends on what they are shot with. I mean, some of the low caliber handguns like nine millimeter handguns are a lot like, you know, they, it's like pushing a spear through tissue. Like what it touches is what it injures. And sometimes that hits bone. Sometimes that hits arteries, vital organs, and people need emergent resuscitation. And we've got incredible trauma surgeons and anesthesiologists who are at the ready 24 hours a day, seven days a week to rush people from our emergency department into the operating room in order to stop bleeding and reconnect bones in order to save them. Sometimes we see these magical bullets that seem like they don't hit anything, just go right through somebody's muscle or skin and leave them without much injury. Occasionally we'll see people with these high velocity military style weapons and those missiles create not only the flesh wound, the wound of what it goes through, but also create a shockwave and tissue and damage things that the bullet itself never touched. And those devastating injuries require even more resuscitation and are more common, are more likely to lead them to, to death and devastation. But then there's a second component to this, which is they damage people in communities. When people are shot, it changes them from being healthy to sick in a flash, which is more than simply a physical experience. It's a mental and social experience. It it, it shows them that safety is conditional, that they can be transformed from one thing to another with the flash of a gun muzzle and people experience PTSD and bad dreams and it changes them in ways that are hard to articulate. And not only does it change them, it changes their family and their community. I I had a patient not too long ago who, you know, had been shot in the past and stopped going outside because he didn't feel safe. Felt like the sun was an eye looking at him. You know, that kind of depression is not simply what happens when the bullet passes through your tissue. It is what happens when these bullets pass through our communities, when we aren't, when communities don't feel safe, when 
a sufficient number of people are harmed that um, that violence becomes a language that everybody begins to speak. Those those things are you know a public health emergency, and I think we're beginning to think about it that way. I, I, I but I think that there are just it's it's a prospect that if we grappled with more dearly, we might have more solutions than simply let's escalate our our our, our criminal justice system. But let's we might start thinking carefully about how is it that we create safety for everybody. In your book, you have seven letters that you write to different people. I would ask you first for someone who might get the book. Are those names uh, the actual names of people, or are they synonyms? Oh, they're absolutely synonyms. I wouldn't want to violate anybody's trust or have people come in the emergency department thinking that they would be somehow turned into a character. So these are composites, and these are um, these are these are constructed names rather than real ones. In, in the letter, dear Nicole, you say this: television shows about emergency rooms make you think it's all romance and drama, but what we do is mostly mundane. I, I ask that question in light of the fact that there is a show that is based on a hospital, almost sounds like the University uh, of uh, Chicago Medical Center, uh, Chicago Med. Have you ever watched it, and what's the impact that that's having on the public? <laughs> I have never watched any medical show. I've never watched Chicago Med. I never watched ER. I've never seen St. Elsewhere. I haven't seen any of them. And for a couple of reasons. I mean, if they're too real, then I could be at work. And that's not exactly something I would find enjoyable or relaxing. And if they're not real enough, I don't know if I would be able to suspend my sense of disbelief in order to accepted as entertaining. So I, I don't really watch them. I, I do think that you hear people think, see these shows and feel that, well, everything wraps up in a 60 minute period or however long it is. People get there, they get treated, diagnosed and discharged in such a short time frame. And when people get CPR, they always come back. And I don't think that those sorts of dramas um, can reflect that the the real challenges that we face and the extended time periods that people wait um, or really show the complicated humanity and suffering that people experience. You know, I think that one of the challenges that we all have, whether it's TV dramas or not, is that we've actually transitioned so much of human suffering off screen. Right? There, we, our emergency departments are locked behind closed doors for good privacy reasons. But also, we never see people actually die anymore. I feel like people used to die at home in the, you know, in the in the 20th century. There was it was more common that our elders would get sick and they, you know, die in the die in their bed and family would be around them. And now all of those ends have been medicalized, and never did we see that more than during COVID, where for good public health reasons hospitals were closed for the public. And so it was only, you know, our respiratory therapists and doctors and nurses who saw 
people stricken with COVID gasping for breath and the wild eyes of fear that struck people as they were drowning in their own lungs. And I wonder if instead of, you know, the sanitized TV drama where things get wrapped up, even if they're scary, you get wrapped up in a 60 minute time frame. We actually saw what happened over the multiple weeks that it took for folks to succumb to COVID. Maybe we might have come together to address it more, more acutely. Um, maybe if we actually, sh- you know, illuminated the waiting rooms of our nation's emergency departments where people sit and wait for hours and young people find are, are stricken with chronic illness too soon and people are maimed by work events. Maybe if we saw that and saw the humanity in those moments and recognized that these weren't rare experiences and they didn't get neatly tied in a bow, maybe, maybe that would lead us to be to take them more seriously and make different decisions about how we structure our society, given it's our society that affects how we are, that affects our bodies in these moments. What's the average time you spend with a, with an ER patient? That's a good question. You know, it depends. Our emergency department is structured by acuity. So, there are certain sections of our emergency department that are for the critically ill that need resuscitation and care over a longitudinal period. So, you know, if you're having a stroke, you need a lot of resources. You need a, lot, a whole team to come in the room to see if we can't resolve that problem. And if you have a sprained ankle, you need a different level of resources. You don't need quite as much resource and you know you might not even need a whole bed you might even be able to have that managed in a chair and so when i'm in an area that is where i am simply screening people for an emergent medical condition and start their workup that they can then go back to the waiting room it, i might only get three minutes per patient but if i'm in the trauma area or i'm in the resuscitation bay and somebody needs intense care, critical care over an extended period, I'll be there as long as it takes. Half hour, hour, whatever it need, whatever is necessary, I'll be in the room to make sure they get the service they need. And we rotate those spaces over the course of a month, over the course of the year, so that everybody experiences all facets of our emergency department, if you, all of our faculty and all of our, our residents to to get the exposure to both sides of that care process. Where did you get an idea to write a book? Um, I've been journaling for a while and partially I've been journaling in order to help me work through the experience of you know, sort of the moral conundrum that comes with the gap between what people need and and what we can give them. And so, you know, as somebody who's been trained to take care of sick people and, you know, spend a lot of time in medical school and a lot of time in residency, when people are in the waiting room and they've been waiting for five or six hours and you don't have any beds available and you have to pick which one gets, who gets the single bed that's necessary, for care and 
five or six people who are critically ill out there out of the 40 who are waiting, it's very frustrating. It makes you feel, um, it, it is not why you went into medicine and it makes you feel helpless to a system, a system that you have no control over. And the patients feel similarly helpless. And so you pick somebody and you bring them back and you deliver the care that you spent all those decades training for. And then you look back out there and there's still five people who are critically ill and need a bed. And so dealing with that frustration led me to journal, write down, well, not only what did I experience, but how am I feeling and what am I seeing? How do I pull together the 20 years of experience, both in the emergency department, but also in shaping the healthcare system from the various vantages that I've had from the payer side to government how do I pull all that together into an understanding of what is this system that I'm seeing? And that journaling led me to some conversations with friends who have been trying to encourage me to write for quite some time. And then the next thing you know, COVID happens, with not, which not only lays bare many of these system challenges that have been longstanding, but also provides quite a lot of time to write. I mean, there's no restaurants to go to, can't travel, nothing on TV because everything from sports to new television shows have been canceled. So that journaling t turned into a, a daily writing habit. And then the next thing you know, here we are with the book. How did you get Ta-Nehisi Coates to write a foreword? Ta-Nehisi and I met when we were in our late teens, early 20s through Common Friends. And we've been in constant dialogue ever since, close friends. Um, as I wrote the book, um, he was certainly encouraging and even prompting me how to think about writing, how to describe what, one's, what I see, how to shape an argument. I mean, he's one of our generation's best writers, and so I was very edified to have his prompts, experiences, and exposures. Um, and then, you know, as he writes in the foreword, there was a time, I don't know, 15 years ago or so, 17 years ago, where he and I and our other common friend, Natalie Moore, uh, were more or less, you know, we were proximate to a murder where we heard the gunshots and saw the body. And, you know, which was a tangible reminder to how not only are we all close to it, we're close to the violence. It's always been proximate to our lives, so close that we can see it going off around us. And here I am taking care of the, of the victims of it in my emergency department in the same community where I grew up in. But as I describe in the book the implications of this, the implications that we have a broader society that is structured by racial caste, that distributes our goods, resources, and protections accordingly due to segregation, that elevates profit over people and creates winners and losers. And those losers are experiencing those losses in losses of years and extended suffering because of the health consequences of a society that doesn't protect them. Well, this dovetails with the work that he's been doing. And in many ways, they're facets of a broader argument about the sort of revolution that we require in the way we see humanity in order to restructure a society that actually takes care of the people 
and recognizes our shared humanity. Since our arguments are similar, when he read the book, he's like, how can I help? And this is how he helps. And um, I just feel privileged to have his friendship and really fortunate to have his words introducing the emergency. How often have you noticed that black people coming to an emergency room are treated differently than white people? It's very rare that there is some explicit, well, this black person is going to get different care than that white person. Because we've structured a society that is segregated and we have created these massive wealth and income imbalances, what's more common is that we have a society-wide difference in the way we take care of black folks and white folks. Near my hospital on the south side of Chicago, it's mostly black people. The south side is predominantly black. In Inglewood, a community not far from where I work, we see 25% of people are unemployed, 12% or so are uninsured. And so when you are unemployed, your opportunity to take good care of yourself, to you know, have time in order to eat healthy and exercise, um, to remain mentally safe from stress and strain to, you know, are limited. Also, when you don't have that buying power, the likelihood that you have the goods and services around you that where you can buy healthy food are fewer. That struggle that goes along with poverty around in resource constrained environments has been described really clearly as the genesis for our violence pandemic in a, in, um, Elliot Curie's really great book, A Peculiar Indifference, he describes how violence tracks really closely with poverty. You compare that to Lakeview, where only 2.5% are uninsured and 2.5% are unemployed, you see a bountiful neighborhood with shops and restaurants and plenty of healthcare outlets. So it's not surprising that black men in Inglewood have a thir- have a life expectancy of around 60 years compared to about 90 years in Lakeview, a 30-year life expectancy difference. That's not because somebody says, well, this person is going to get different care than that person, or this person doesn't matter, but that person does. It's because as a society, we made those decisions, and we continue to make those decisions. It's because we aren't saying this is unacceptable, that everybody in our community is similarly human and we all deserve to take care of each other in the same way. It's because we have bystanders who look at this segregation as something that was descended from the heavens as opposed to man-made by policies that get extended year over year. And as a result, we see some people paying with their lives, right? We know what safe communities look like. They're in Chicago. We know what healthy communities look like they're also here. We can do this for everybody if we chose to. In your book, you say something like the following on several occasions. I'll read a sentence and get your reaction. Mm-hmm. The immorality of a segregated emergency department 
offering wealthy and white patients quality care at the expense of services for poor and black people fueled me through sleepless nights and anxiety about retaliation. Yeah. Why did you so often write something similar to that in the book? I was describing in those moments a particular crucible that happened early in my career where um, the institution was in, was uh, responding to a financial downturn by creating a two-tiered emergency department. One section for people with specific medical problems, but also good insurance, and another section for people with other medical problems and without good insurance. That two-tiered medical system, or you know, these VIP end-arounds, are morally fraught. Because what they are saying is that if you have good insurance, you are more worthy of health care. Not because you're sicker, not because you need more health care, not because you're the most vulnerable and therefore require additional services, but because you're wealthier, because you happen to win the lottery and had a great upbringing and good education and you now have good insurance. If you believe that we are all similarly human, that when we are sick and vulnerable, which we will all be at one point, that in those moments when we are, sh when all of our social s categories have been shed and we're no longer an engineer, we're just a sick person. If you believe that in those moments we're all human and we all deserve to be nurtured and cared for, then why should your insurance status be the thing that defines whether or not you get prompt care? Shouldn't that be defined by something related to your illness itself? These, these categories and ways of funneling our most dear healthcare resources towards those who have the most, rather than those who need it the most, are moral blight particularly then when you step back and consider that most of these healthcare resources have been structured and delivered by the public. I mean, if you are cared for by a, a resident, those residents are paid for by federal dollars. If you're seeking care in a nonprofit healthcare setting, well, their revenues are tax protected and the, the land that they sit on is being subsidized by their surrounding communities. These things should be held in common in order to serve those things that are most dear to us, our bodies. Our health is the most important thing that we have and everybody knows it just as soon as their son or daughter falls ill, just as soon as their partner gets hurt just as soon as they have a car accident, they know that nothing else is more important than their health. So why aren't we having our healthcare reflect these deeper truths, these facts that 
we are at the end of the day all human and all worthy and at the end of the day we can't have two tears at the end of the day we owe one another that when we are the most sick and the most vulnerable that we can be sure that we're going to be cared for without regard for these arbitrary social categories when you talk about your university experience you talk about being dropped into a small community in New Hampshire <laughs> called Hanover. Yeah. And unless I missed it, and I could have easily missed it, you never named the college. I know what college it is, but oh, really? I wonder if that was done on purpose. No, I don't think I – I don't recall doing that on purpose. I went to Dartmouth College. What was it like for you? Uh, it was a stretch experience. It was – so beautiful. A fall in northern New England is stunning. Um, with the hills around um, ablaze with trees changing colors and crisp fall air. Um, but you also have to remember, I grew up on the south side of Chicago. And so, you know, my high school had 2,000 kids, something like that, maybe 1,500 and then you go to Norman Rockwell's New England, where, you know, it's a one stoplight town. It's a social and cultural transition. There were mass, you know, the school has incredible resources and, you know, just packed with smart folks, but it was not very diverse. While there were black folks from all over the country and truly all over the world there, there weren't many of us. And so, what I was accustomed to was a level of community and so, to some extent anonymity living in the city. And that was, that was gone. It, it taught me that, well, I learned a ton in and outside the classroom, just as one does in college as you're growing and maturing and, you know, turning into an adult, but also being confronted and challenged by, you know, these very, um, rigorous academic challenges, but also um, being a very small minority in a larger white population that's also quite wealthy, you know, helped me understand what challenges may lay ahead as I navigated larger white spaces and also taught me that, hey, I can, if I can do this, I can do anything. What was the difference between Dartmouth and your medical training at the University of Chicago? Um, you know, I was back home, coming back to Chicago. And while I didn't live at home, um, I was back in familiar environment. And it helped me to um, be regrounded in the community that I knew and loved. Um, and I was also able to bring lessons of sort of the rigor of training that I got in college back to the classroom at the university. And I think one of the biggest difference was also that, look, medical school was past fail. And trying to get into medical school was this, you know, this hunger games of competition. Trying to get ahead of somebody else. But being in a pass-fail environment kind of re reminds you that 
your education is your responsibility and you can't learn it all. And so it kind of took the pressure off and then refocused me on, well, why am I here to begin with? Well, I'm here to kind of learn these tools in order to take care of the community. I wanted to be good at this, not just simply get A's. And that sort of changed my approach. But it also, all of a sudden, I'm back in the segregated city. And it made me wonder, well, how much of this city is actually mine, right? It, it kind of brought me back to, you know, the Benji question. Like, here's somebody who's doing all the right things and was plucked just as he was starting to you know, grow into exactly what he was being groomed to do. Here I am back in the city, and I'm back in this segregated community. Well, how much of this is mine? Can I go to these, you know, downtown restaurants and museums just the same as my classmates? Are they just as much mine as any other Ivy League graduate who is now a medical student? And, um, you know, I talk about this in the book, but in those same time periods, there was a there was a Northwestern student who was executed in a traffic stop by a police officer. His name was Robert Russ. And he was a Northwestern medical student, same city, graduating soon, black man. And while the, I think this was before body cams, it wasn't really clear what happened, but here was another person doing all, another black man like me doing all the right things who was, you know, taken right as he was about to leap into, into, into his adulthood. And so, you know, at the time I, I was similarly, you know, I, I was chastened by this. I was like, well, maybe the city really isn't all mine. Maybe, in fact, these are parameters that are being enforced and they aren't arbitrary. Maybe I need to take heed to what the lessons are. What was your path to becoming a White House fellow in the Obama administration, and where were you located during that time? Uh, the White House Fellowship Program is a very um, competitive application process with recommendations and essays and multiple interviews, and I um, applied soon after that crucible I described earlier where um, the hospital intended but then stopped creating a two-tiered health emergency department. When that process happened, I realized that I needed to learn more about how leaders make decisions and how I can be more thoughtful and influential in whatever leadership processes might structure the American healthcare system. And so, so I applied and you know, through the process, I um, was selected, and I feel very fortunate. It's the best job I've ever had, um, not only because I had amazing classmates in my group and joined a broader White House fellow community that has just been supportive and um, throughout this, you know, in the subsequent years, but I was there soon after the Affordable Care Act passed, and I was placed at HHS where all of the regulations that would turn into, you know, that would emerge from the law and turn into uh, restructuring the American healthcare system were being implemented. And so I was around extremely smart and experienced leaders um, 
I was placed with the secretary, Kathleen Sebelius, who just demonstrated what some of the best of uh, executive leadership look like, deep experience and thoughtful. I had the chance to work on the National Action Plan for Health Disparities to help us guide, you know, will we get what we pay for and make sure that those resources are being distributed to the people who need them the most. And I had got mentors and peers that have stayed with me ever since. It was just a really cool experience. What have you noticed the impact of the Obamacare legislation has been on emergency rooms? Um, I think that the short answer is we got busier. And I think the long answer is the reason be, the reasons are complicated. Um, I think that the Affordable Care Act has demonstrated the capacity. It, it expanded, it expanded um, the ability, it expanded insurance to many more people, both through private insurance regulation, through um, the health insurance exchanges, through allowing young people to stay on their parents' coverage, through and most importantly, through Medicaid expansion. Um, and I think that what that's done is many things. I think that with more people being able to pay their providers, that meant that there was more incentive for providers to, to, to offer more resources. I think that's been good. I also think that that's led more people to seek help when they need it, and I think that's been good. Um, I think that it also leads to a couple of other challenges. One is um, it hasn't changed the way we sh have shaped our provision of healthcare. Like the hospitals and clinics and medical centers still look largely the way they did before the Affordable Care Act, even as we pay for healthcare. And I think we need a similarly aggressive transformation in the way we deliver services so that we are filling in gaps and providing care in the ways that people need it at the times that they need it um, and do so in a more, you know, that are, that in, we need to do it in ways that are responsive to people's needs. I also think that there, so, so we've done the demand side of healthcare, which is how do you pay for it? Now we need like to do the supply side where we need a revolution in the way we deliver healthcare. I, I also think that, I don't want us to get confused by um, the idea that healthcare will be solved with a new economic equation, right? Even if we did one of the many strategies to provide, you know, Medicare for all or health or health insurance for everybody, part of what we're seeing is not just a payment problem, but a human problem. Like, I don't want us to get economic and human problems confused, right? These human problems, what we owe each other, the moral imperative to take care of sick people is independent of how we pay for it, right? And I worry that if we're not grappling with that human imperative, the fact that we have a racial caste system in America that distributes our healthcare resources, and that we have in many ways elevated profit over people. Those are human questions that can't be resolved simply by distributing additional insurance to more people. 
because then what you will see is our systems will respond to ensure we, we are still responding to our racial caste system and still elevating profit over people. We have to actually fundamentally grapple with those deeper questions. We need a revolution in the way we view our humanity. And that's bigger than a partisan question. That's bigger than an economic question. It is who are we as a society? And if you cannot see that shared humanity when we're sick, it's no question. It becomes obvious why you can't see it when it's our children. Another thing that we need to better invest in, or when it's our public safety, all of these things are growing from the same deeper question. And we see it even, one of the places I see it in healthcare most commonly is in some of the slogans we use to justify these stratification. Well, no margin, no mission. Right there, we're saying that our mission, which is taking care of sick people and the profit, should be on par. And in fact, you can't put those things in the same sentence. Our bodies are much more precious. They are the way in which we love, the way we dream, the way we worship, the way we create community. That's more important than the money. The money is simply how you make it happen. But what you make happen has to be elevated. And I don't think that the Affordable Care Act, or even if we restructure the, our care delivery service, um, can do that. We have to have this bigger, deeper question. And in the book, what I'm trying to do is show the humanity of that intimate relationship, show that who we are when we're sick is so much more important and something that we need to invest deeply in. Now, just a couple minutes, I want to ask you a question that's out of context, but I wanted you to explain it. As a white man, I wouldn't have a clue what a black man nod is. Ah, okay. <laughs> I feel like maybe I shouldn't even tell you. I feel like you should. There's certain secrets that maybe we should hold. <laughs> it's okay with me, but I still want to ask the question. <laughs> Look, I mean, there are a lot of in-group signals that folks have, whether it is, you know, a language-specific signal or you know, other social cues that we have. And, you know, when black men see one another, we give each other eye contact and a nod to say, I see you and greet each other, say hello. You'll know it when you see it. Take a look around. So if I start using it, what will happen? <laughs> uh, you'll catch people off guard. And people will <laughs> wonder, well, what are you doing? <laughs> um, mother, a social worker, father, a doctor impact on you and you also said your mother's an atheist um yeah i so i think that you know i grew up in a home where education was encouraged like most black folks i mean i think black folks care about education more than almost any community and work to get their children um, into the best opportunities for school, and you see that in the celebrations that happen in black graduations. And so my family is no different. Um, and I think that, you know, having two educated parents also, you know, kicked that into a second gear. Uh, they also taught the importance of service and being a part of a community through, I think, social work. You know, my mother as a social worker also revealed to me very early on that, um, that there are a lot of strata that, you know, things can be much better and much worse. And in her service, 
with the Chicago public schools, working with kids who are in the most dire situations, you know, it was clear to her, you know, that when things go bad, they can go very bad. And she worked very hard to protect us from those things by encouraging us to, you know, to, to do our best and by putting us in the position to do our very best. One last question. I always hate to say that because there's always three or four after that. But one <laughs> one last question, Dr. Fisher, is that your mom required that every subject of every book report had to be about a black person. My mom was very cognizant of making sure that she under that we understood we were a part of a community, an old community a community that has been here on the South side for a hundred years and spawned Mahalia Jackson and Lorraine Hansberry, a part of a community that has been challenging America to live up to its stated, but unrealized values for as long as we've been here. Um, a community that has shaped the country and then the country and, and the world has created art that's durable. Everything from, you know, jazz to rock and roll are black creations. Um, and she wanted us to know that not simply for book reports, but to understand that we are in a context and that the work that we could do will be a part of this context. That the sort of justice that I describe in this book is a part of a very long black American tradition. And that the outcomes that I'm asking that we see ourselves as similarly human and worthy in the care of our bodies is not something that I'm likely to see in my lifetime, just as many of these folks in my book reports were working to do something that they didn't see in their lifetimes, but are a part of an arc of what Black Americans have been demanding of our country since we got here. And so she was intentional about it. I was annoyed because what I wanted to do was something popular and fun. And she was like, actually, you need to understand that you're a part of something bigger than you. You need to know the truth. And so here we are. The book is called The Emergency, subtitled A Year of Healing and Heartbreak in a Chicago ER. Our guest has been Dr. Thomas Fisher at the University of Chicago Medical Center. Thank you very much, sir. Hey, thank you. It's been fun. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org. 